Welcome to episode five of the In Our House Now podcast with your co-host Josh Minton. I'm joined by John Thorne, and we have a special guest today, Jubal Rousseau, uh, who is also co-host of his own podcast, the Counter Esperanto podcast that he hosts um, with Carl Eckler. Yeah, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today's theme is is going to be called fractures and in some ways it builds off our very first episode which was baggage and so what are the fractures as we think about twin peaks to return and john as you so often do you've chosen a great quote to lead us into this conversation if you don't mind uh, absolutely yeah and i just want to um kind of expand on fractures a little bit when we when at least one of my perspectives of fractures is the idea that the narrative we're looking at in uh, Twin Peaks The Return is not your traditional narrative. Um, you could argue that it's a fractured narrative in that we don't always get closure on subplots. In fact, sometimes we get we don't even get openings on subplots. We just get pieces of story. And in some ways, it's up to us to try to make sense of what those pieces mean and um, I do believe that Lynch was deliberate. Lynch and Frost both were deliberate in structuring the narrative in this way. It's a complicated story, and it uh, it it does challenge us as viewers. And so I I found this quote from David Foster Wallace, who was talking uh, about literature at the time, and um, uh, talking about uh, also talking about uh, television. And, uh, and how television has sort of influenced writing. But I think this quote here uh, really applies to how we've watched TV over the, the many decades, really, and uh, why maybe we appreciate or look for something that's a little non-traditional. So the quote from Wallace is, what all commercial entertainment does, it proceeds more or less chronologically. It eases you from scene to scene in a way that drops you into certain kinds of easy cerebral rhythms. It admits of passive spectation, encourages it. TV types, type art's biggest hook is that it's figured out ways to reward passive spectation. Um, and I should say that some of the great television that we all enjoy may follow some of these kind of sim simple patterns and can be great art. I don't want to diminish anything. But I do think the point Wallace is making here is that we've kind of gotten programmed to how to receive TV and movies and even books. And I think when Twin Peaks The Return came on, it basically uh, challenged all of those notions. So, um, so that's the quote. And I guess I should also say that I was following uh, Jubal on Twitter and noticed that he was making some great observations about The Return that seemed to fit right in with this idea of the non-traditional narrative. So I look forward to um, talking to him and asking him about what his thoughts on that were. So I think I'll just jump right in and ask, Jubal, what are your your observations, your sort of general overview of what uh, Twin Peaks The Return is in terms of its, its narrative approach to storytelling? Well, uh, you know, as Lynch was fond of saying, is that it's an 18-hour film broken up into chunks, and I think that's a little disingenuous. It's a it's a TV show in that, the, you know, you, each part has, you know, a structure, uh, but I think that it definitely flies in the face of anything, although I know that you have thoughts, John, on, on it being a, 
there is a three-act structure buried in there somewhere, but it doesn't really seem to follow what anybody would necessarily think of having a beginning, a middle, and an end, the rising action, and you know that kind of thing. It kind of just drops you in. And then it sort of leaves us to kind of figure things out as we go. And I think that that is something that, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting to think of the original Twin Peaks as being kind of innovative at the time as a, a long form show that if you missed an episode or two, you'd be lost. And then now that is kind of something that is normal. Uh, and so I think that the reinvention of Twin Peaks, the return has, has created another challenging, uh, another element that challenges our perception of of a long form narrative uh, storytelling and I think what that it makes it really difficult for people who are uh, you know used to just watching you know like I'd say that Breaking Bad is probably one of the ultimate uh, shows of the standard format where every little element that's brought in it comes back you know brilliantly I think you know it's like I, I think that it's a testament to that show that it was done in such a way that it doesn't seem cheap you know um but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Tw Twin Peaks, the return is almost the anti-breaking bad in a way, uh, because it is uh, breaking almost all of the rules. And I think that just kind of drives people crazy. Um, I've used uh, the example in, uh, on uh, Counter Esperanto before of, of uh, Stravinsky's Rites of Spring. Um, when it was first debuted, it caused riots because it was using all of these, you know, diatonality, like different keys at once. It was using all these different time signatures and it was just, just chaos. People went nuts <laughs> and hated it and panned, you know, panned him and then like excoriated uh, Stravinsky in the press. A year later, he has a, a sh you know, uh, debuts, has a second debut of basically, because I think they, they stopped playing it for a while. Uh, and everyone loved it because they knew going in that it was going to be challenging. Um, and so that's, there's some interesting lessons that we might be able to learn from that, uh, was when considering the, uh, the return. Yeah, that's interesting because, um, I do believe that, um, the, the return is one of those, one of those stories, um, that is better appreciated, uh, on multiple viewings. And yet the demand to watch an 18 hour story multiple times is, um, is in itself daunting. Um, that's asking a lot. If it's if it's a movie, you, you know, you can you can find many many films that are two two and a half hours long that are maybe confusing on first viewing, or once you get to the end, you suddenly have to reevaluate the two hours you've seen up until that point. It's easier to go back and watch a two hour film again. It's much much harder um, to go back and watch eighteen hours again. So. Um, it's interesting what you said about Breaking Bad. Uh, I had an opportunity to uh, briefly visit with Mark Frost in Austin, Texas, about six months before the uh, return premiered. And I was able to sit down with him. It's just he and I at a little breakfast table, and we were talking. And I said to him, you know, a lot has happened in television since 1990 and i was referring to shows like breaking bad and the sopranos and i said you do know that the bar is so much higher now than it was back then and he said oh we know we knew that we know that and we uh, we are we were prepared for that so i think um having heard frost say that and of course having seen what we've seen i think there was it was certainly deliberate um on on the part of frost and lynch to make something that was going to break the mold again. It was going to push uh, TV again into new territory. 
Um, what are your thoughts on, on that, Jubal, on just um, how maybe the return was a response to Breaking Bad and uh, some of the other great television uh, that came out since 2000? Well, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about schisms because, you know, the center of the return is, is, involves several schisms of the mind of Dale Cooper. Uh, and so rather than having somebody like a Tony Soprano, an anti-hero, you know, uh, which is, you know, like the television's loaded with anti-heroes, uh, you know, what what they're doing is they're sort of breaking him. What, what I, I like to describe what they're doing with Cooper is they're, it's like they're shooting him through a prism and we only see one one color at a time. Uh, and, uh, and so that is taking the kind of like, uh, the antihero, you know, element where, okay, okay. So you see Tony Soprano and he's like a loving father and he's a complicated man. They do this whole thing. But, uh, what we're seeing is all of those flavors, all of those colors and, t- and textures isolated. And, uh, turns out that kind of drives people crazy, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it's like, okay, so what do we have? We have five or six Coopers. We have the good Coop who's trapped in the lodge. You know, and I don't want to get too far afield here, but uh, we have his good side. Uh, we have Mr. C, his bad half. We have the quote-unquote real Dougie, the tulpa, the part of Coop that uh, Coop's bad half, which has intense appetites, sex, gambling, drinking, and sloth. Uh, and then we have, potentially not separate from one, we have the wiped Dougie Cooper. All intuition, love, compassion, the part of Cooper that we knew, that just knew where to look. And where to go when the time was right. And then the second Dougie Tulpa made from the good Coop's hair. Uh, to this, he gave his desire for family and a home, which we knew was strong, especially in season two. Right at the beginning of the of season two, he has that speech. Uh, and then we have Richard Cooper, the integrated part. I could I consider Richard to be the integrated parts of good Coop and Mr. C, minus the aspects that they gave their Tulpas. Appetite, sloth, love, and family. This is a roving, restless Cooper who, who no longer has a place to be. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a great way of great way of looking at it. It's beautiful. Uh, I think that's a the perfect way to to look at this. Now, when we start to talk about the framework with, within which it was exposed throughout, you know, the return, you, you need eighteen hours <laughs> to explore exactly what you just laid out there, and so. You know, to to answer John's point, there is a high barrier of entry to to continually revisit this material, but the rewards are immense for those that have the patience and and really the, I mean, I guess what's the right word, kindness almost to, to the art itself. You know, I think what Lynch does is uh, he uses frustration almost as a texture itself. Uh, you know, and, and I think the, the ultimate distillation of that, of course, is the sweeping scene. Everyone hate, says they hate the sweeping scene, but you know, it's what, it's like two minutes long, but feels like an hour. No, I, but I think that, you know, there was a lot of talk, you know, in the early podcasts about, you know, while the show was on as to whether or not they're kind of trolling us, you know, and I don't see that at all. I just kind of, what I see, I mean, I could see why somebody would think that, but what I see is, uh, you know, like with the Audrey storyline, uh, frustration is a texture. He's allowing people to become extraordinarily tense. And that's why the long drive at the end, uh, towards the end of part 18, when you realize, Oh crap, there's only 10 minutes left. Uh, that is so excruciating. <laughs> and I, it never is that excruciating. Again, the first time you watch that scene and you realize that all of a sudden, all these threads are dropping away. You say, Oh God, there's not going to be a resolution to Audrey. Oh, we're not going to get this and this and that. And then, uh, you know, and then that final scream and then the blackout, it's like, it's, it's traumatizing. I went and wandered around the neighborhood in a daze <laughs> and came back and watched it again the second day. And it wasn't quite as intense, but I think frustration is central 
to the return. And that might be something to discuss is because that's something that uh, showrunners are usually dead set against. You know, you don't want people to become stressed out because they're going to change the channel. Uh, that is an excellent, excellent point. We do need to explore the idea of frustration. Um, you reminded me of a couple of things, so I'm just going to pepper them in here real quick, and then and then I'll ask you specifically about some frustration things. Um, uh, it's interesting what you say about the end of Part 18. I interviewed Tim Kreider, who wrote an essay about uh, the return being entirely a dream of Cooper. But that aside, uh, his reaction, I remember him telling me his reaction to watching Part 18. He said he went to bed, he woke up the next morning, it felt like someone had died. He was in a mourning. And it wasn't that he was sad, he loved the show. It was just that he, um, you know, he had invested all that time in it. It was a startling ending, and he had to come to terms with it. And it took him a little while to go through those, what are those, those five reactions to grief or whatever. Um, so that that's interesting. The other thing that, that uh, you made me think of is a sweeping scene because um, I think, you know, I think it's Alan Seppenwall, the TV critic, who I saw on Twitter say something to the effect of, uh, uh, and I'm not sure he's a big fan of the return, but, you know, he said, you know, we, we don't want to sit there or, you know, we had to endure sweeping for the entire run of Green Onions. Well, that's not that's not true. I mean, the, the, the sweeping scene, while certainly long and longer than anything we would see in a normal show, is is only 97 seconds long i mean only whereas green onions is like a you know four minute song imagine if it had been four minutes of sweeping i mean that's what he was complaining about but that's not what it was it felt like four minutes to him because i would argue he's used to watching television shows that never take 90 seconds of a pause um I, I reading an interview with David Simon when he was talking about the television show Treme, which was set in New Orleans and had to do with the, the music scene in New Orleans. And he talked about how difficult it was to feature the music in that show because they wanted to give the artists time to perform. But when they'd sit down in the editing room, they would realize that after a, you know showing the artist for a minute, it felt like an eternity, just having them playing on a stage because the narrative had been essentially stopped while we watched these folks play. And, and the difficulty in trying to maintain you know basically your traditional narrative and still feature the music. So uh, I think all those things are interesting. So, but anyway, when it comes to frustration, um, I've got to ask, because I, I, I really am in sync with you on this idea of frustration. Um, the, the Audrey storyline, the first time we see Audrey, we have essentially a 12-minute scene where Audrey is talking to Charlie. And I remember the first time seeing that, uh, how incredibly frustrating that scene was. If you go back and watch it, the scene is all about frustration. Audrey is frustrated when she can't find out what Charlie is hearing on the other end of the line, and she's desperate to find out. And it was only upon reflection and multiple viewings I realized we are supposed to feel what Audrey's feeling. We, the audience, are supposed to be frustrated. Um, that's what that's about. It's not about whether Audrey's going to find out what Charlie's hearing or how the plot's going to move forward. It's about feeling that moment. That's a rarity when I think when an artist can put you just in that moment of feeling that 
um, whatever the character is experiencing. I think we see that in many places. Um, one of them also is Bobby outside the double R when he's having to deal with the chaos in the intersection. Um, do do you have any uh, have any thoughts about Audrey or about Bobby or any other characters? Um, and what Lynch is attempting there, getting us to be that character rather than watch that character. Right. Yes, absolutely. You, uh, I think you and Josh brought up uh, the ninth circle of hell part of the rant um, that is in the scene just prior to Audrey's reappearance or, you know, the first appearance in return is that he says ninth circle of hell. Ninth circle of hell, of course, is reserved for traitors and it is being stuck in place in a frozen lake, I believe, or something like that. Uh, and I don't, if I, I may be wrong, but I don't think that in that first scene, we see her from the waist up and I don't think she moves at all. Uh, almost to the point where I started thinking, you know, cause we're all thinking, okay, last time we saw her, she was in a bank explosion. I was wondering if she had fake, like artificial legs or was in some sort of like weird, like Lynchian version of a, of a, a wheelchair or something, you know, uh, you know, or cyber cybernetic implants, who knows? Uh, but, uh, that, um, so that was something that was on your mind because ninth circle of hell. And then boom, we get this, this first thing of Audrey and where everybody's excited. I think that was the show that aired during the, uh, uh, fest, right. The Twin Peaks fest. And I'm sure that was, a. <laughs> I wasn't there, but I'd love to have, uh, been able to kind of see the reactions because I think part 12 is the ultimate frustration. Uh, I think frustration is probably more acute in that episode than possibly even 18 as a whole. Uh, and, uh, and, but I think that uh, what we're getting with with Audrey is it's definitely this sort of isolated, you know, like 1940s. It, it's completely out of time. And I think, you know, if we could say that the return is largely from Cooper's perspective, I think that Audrey storyline is almost like a little slice of hers. Uh, and she has her own uh, concerns and her own, you know, all those details and stuff that are in those scenes are so separate from the rest of the return because that's her world. Uh, the thing with Bobby is interesting because that scene is almost, uh, you know, kind of people talk about the language kind of slow, uh, editing that, that Lynch uses in the return. But that scene, as soon as that bullet hole comes through the window, all of a sudden we're kind of dropped into a cop show, the editing, the moving camera follows Bobby, you know, as he's, as he has his gun drawn and he sees the kid and the dad and the whole thing. And it's, so you're following it and it's almost like something out of law and order, you know, and then he goes over and, and then talks to the uh, woman who has this she's telling this conflicting story about a, a sick relative and being late for dinner. And those two things don't jive with each other. And then the child rises up and oozes vomit. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, Carl and I have talked about this a lot because I think that is the first time that Bobby truly encounters something encounters the weird in twin peaks, like in the, the what we call the capital W weird, which is the, uh, this, this intrusion of the, of this other, side of things into our world because before this i mean we know bobby is somebody who knew that uh laura was a troubled woman but she he, or a troubled girl and, and he had no idea of so, this other side of things and i think that's his only real encounter with it even just a hint of it you know you know it, it's interesting you bring that up because i was watching it again recently and you know what it reminded me of particularly his reaction uh, at the very end is it reminded me of the original series. Um, it's actually my favorite scene in the original series where Bobby happens to be in the roadhouse uh, at the time that Maddie is being killed. And uh, suddenly the characters in the roadhouse seem to be aware 
that something terrible has happened. They don't know what it is. And Cooper is reacting. He's looking up. And I think the old waiter comes over and says, I'm so sorry. And Donna starts to cry. And James is confused. And he's trying to comfort her. She's really crying. I mean, she's like, you know, and she doesn't know why. And Bobby turns um, and he looks and he's trying to figure something out. He's trying to sort of grasp something that's beyond his ability. And um, that scene in the intersection reminded me of that, of that moment with Bobby. Um, you're absolutely right. He's the character who, who seems to be apart from all of that. And, and when he comes up against it, when he bumps up against that otherworldliness, he is just dumbfounded, just trying to figure it out. Right. That's one thing that makes it so powerful in, in part 17, when all of these people who never really had a part of that, we had James and uh, and Bobby all encountering whatever the hell's going on with Bob in that room, you know? <laughs> yeah. The, 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 cur the curtain as it was has blown back and now we can see what's behind it, you know? Yeah. So what do you make of, we were talking about Audrey, whose story is essentially incomplete. Um, and, you know, talking about the Bobby scene in the intersection, it's never referred to again. Bobby doesn't bring it up. None of the, the, uh, sheriffs seem to, or the deputies seem to be following up on it. In fact, I, I've looked very closely to subsequent scenes and there's no, there's no damage to the double R in later scenes. And there's no, you know, police tape around the booth or any, any kind of evidence that it even happened. Um, and there are a lot of scenes like that. There's, uh, uh, Becky and, and Stephen in the woods, and um, uh, I mean, we we could count through a number of scenes of you know um, uh, Andy trying to meet up with the farmer who disappeared. These are these are um, subplots that are thrown in there and never um, never followed up on. Um, what is your thought about that that structural way of telling a story? And what do you think the the purpose is of fragments of um, as we said here fractures? in the story. Well, uh, one way that we could interpret it is that whatever it, whatever meddling that Cooper is, uh, has done in order to, you know, have this, this hubris that he could go back and save Laura's life. You know, if that's how we want to interpret what's going on, uh, that I, it's possible that it could be interpreted that something that he has done has essentially scrambled reality, causality cause like, you know, possibly this, this diverted, you know, if we want to talk about schism and fracturing cause, you know, if you cause a different timeline by saving her life, uh, you know, I kind of interpret it that, uh, that there's a homeostasis with time that can be only so elastic. And then it has like this process of coming back in alignment with itself. Uh, and so, uh, we might be seeing that because there's definitely some restructuring happening from possibly how it was shot and how it was written. And there, I think there's definitely some stuff being moved around in the edit. Uh, I think people have talked about, about uh, uh, Lucy wearing like the same garment on what would probably have been different days or, or like, you know, like, like there's some sort of like, uh, uh, I, I, uh, one thing that is when Bobby goes into the double R and he talks to Ed and says, boy, we found something out in the woods today. Or, and it was, no, that would have been a couple days ago, I think, you know, based on what we've been shown. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that brings up the whole idea of how the way time flows in the story, because time is just sort of crazy. And, and the best example, I think, of that is Jerry Horn in the woods. I mean, Jerry Horn goes off into the woods at the beginning of the story. He doesn't, as far as we know, he doesn't have any food or water with him. Maybe he has a little bit in his backpack. But he's out in the woods until the end of the story, which we assume is at least a few days, if not more. 
Um, and not only that, he somehow seems to travel on foot 200 miles to, uh, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So, um, so that makes no sense if you think of the story in any kind of traditional way. Like, okay, it's impossible. He couldn't have gone in the woods, survived, <laughs> and made it that far in what seems to be a very short amount of time. Um, I think some of that is deliberate, or, or at least if it's not deliberate, it's not important, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, we didn't design it so that we're really messing with time here. We designed it, right, we're going to just show you these things, um, these segments, and um, we're not going to worry about causality, you know, the chronolo uh, chronology of it. Um, and, and maybe so. So I guess my question is: Am I being too forgiving of Twin Peaks? I think critics would say, "Oh, you're just coming up with an excuse, or you're just um, you know you're finding a way to have it make sense, or you're giving far too much credit to the creators." Uh, what's your response to that? The idea that that um, you know we're too easy on it. We give we you know we we give it a pass. Yeah, that would be true if uh, if like you know uh, classic uh, literature and you know classic dramatic structure is uh, considered the only way, the only correct way to do things. I I don't believe that that's true. You know, and here's here's the thing that when I was watching The Return originally, I was taking a, a film. I was a uh, uh, Taiwanese and um, uh, was in uh, Hong Kong uh, cinema, and uh, and a lot of those. Uh, uh, filmmakers you know you'd have a four-hour film that's made up of eight static shots of people moving in and out of a room and kind of muttering i mean it's you know when i talk about slow cinema you know that that is that is what it or, or uh, chantal ackerman this isn't hong kong obviously but chantal ackerman's uh jean dealman which is uh i think it's a four-hour film of a woman engaging in uh household activities and then every evening when she puts the pot roast in she goes and services a john <laughs> And then he leaves and then she goes back uh, to, to work to provide food for her son. And she's a single mother doing what she can to survive. But it's a four hour film uh, that is a, a, just intoxicating to watch. And I was watching that stuff when The Return came on. So I might not be the best person to ask about that, frankly, because because it seemed it seemed like the Fast and the Furious compared <laughs> to that stuff. Well, you know, I mean, I think if anyone's really studied or hasn't necessarily even had to study, but just is familiar with Lynch's work as far back as Eraserhead, but certainly the, the, the second half of his career, which I would argue probably starts with Lost Highway. Um, this wasn't anything surprising, The Return. I mean, as surprising as it was, it seemed to be what we kind of expect from Lynch. Well, yeah, it's uh, some people would describe it as, uh, you know, some people have described it as, oh, this isn't Twin Peaks. This is David, David Lynch, the TV series. Uh, and so they might say that derisively, but I, I wouldn't. I see what I see their point and I could almost agree with it because I think what it's using is Twin Peaks as a framework for him to sort of work out some of his little quirks. You know, like I think a lot of the, the Dougie stuff, a lot of the stuff in Las Vegas uh, has a lot in common with Jacques Tati's uh, work. You know, uh, I watched my uncle recently, you know, and you can see that that kind of humor, the sort of odd way that people behave the social interactions you know it's like i'm sure all of us are going crazy it's like somebody call an ambulance he's obviously not well and people all they do is they just kind of fur furrow their brow at him you know and 
<laughs> you know, and uh, but but it wouldn't work if you if they if there wasn't this sort of like disconnect of how the world would really work in this circumstance because they're trying to explore this figure that's a little bit like Monsieur Hulot moving through this world, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I think back to like what I read about Lynch's first film, I guess if you want to call it that, which was what, Eight Men Getting Sick, which was just a moving painting. I mean, that was how he perceived, that's how he approached film was, you know, what, what can I do from a painting perspective to add some motion to it? And then to the point earlier about emotion, like that, that is a fascinating concept of being able to paint on the screen with the viewer's emotions, including frustration, but frustration through nostalgia, uh, especially, I think played very, very heavily in a way that Lynch has never been able to, to do with any other piece of work besides Twin Peaks. And it took 25 years for that nostalgia to build up within the audience and be able to paint with that emotion uh, and and what did it do? It fractured the viewing community. I mean, we'll get back to the theme of fractures here, uh, and that is completely fascinating to me because what are we three years after the the return aired, and the community is still fractured. Yeah, yeah. Some people have sort of like uh, almost like defined themselves. And uh, I don't want to go be too hard on people. I'm just saying some people kind of define themselves their their sort of role in the community now as sort of being the naysayers. You know, the kind of person that's that's why Twitter threads are, are really good for just getting off a quip or a little jab, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so I see that come in where it's like the same five or six people come in and say, it's like, uh, yeah, well, obviously, the, you know, the sweeping scene, blah, 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 you know, just kind of bring bringing in the same six, six examples, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and of course, I, I don't fault somebody for not liking it. I don't fault somebody for being disappointed in it. I've actually just kind of find it sad because there's so much to love if you can just kind of let go you know if i want you know the pie eating uh, uh cooper I, you know well he eats a little bit of pie in the return but if i want this you know the cooper the cooper that we know and love i have 30 hours of him on my shelf i can revisit that anytime uh i think what we got with dougie with this this fracturing of of cooper's psyche which is in keeping with what we saw at the end of this the series it's not like we're given anything that's on some level is not unexpected uh, he was broken like a glass, you know, thrown on the ground and everything is just in pieces and we're seeing those pieces. And the fact that, see, like when he wakes up in part 16, we're still not seeing a full Cooper. We never see the Cooper that we know, you know, that we know. So let, let's talk a little bit about Dougie because that's, you know, that really fits in with some of the themes we've been talking about so far, the idea of frustration <laughs> and uh, and fractures. Um, I think frustration in particular we could talk about the idea that, you know, when Cooper emerges as Dougie and we have this Dougie character, I think we all on the first viewing anticipated the return of Cooper much, much sooner than part 16. And every episode we thought this is the moment. I mean, I thought when he went down and he first had the cup of coffee, which I think is part five, uh, you know, he's in the breakfast nook with Sonny Jim, and he drinks the coffee for the first time. And in fact, I think it's the first time he he says something unprompted. Um, he, he he spits it out, and uh, oh, I can't remember what the the coffee. Yeah, right. He says hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says hi, and and it's like that was unprompted. That wasn't a repeat. Dougie's been repeating things. You know, he someone says something, and he says the same thing back. And so I thought, that's it. He woke up. And then, of course, it wasn't the case. And and then, you know, as we went along, I kept thinking this will be the moment, you know, when um, when I, Spike attacked him. 
surely you know he, he responds um in such a dramatic fashion surely this is the moment where now he's he's cooper again uh, and it wasn't and so it was very frustrating and i i know i've seen uh you know we're talking about people who've, who've critiqued it uh, that's one of the number one places you talk about the sweeping scene and some of the other things dougie seems to be the the, the the gravity well of criticism it's like we had to suffer through dougie and it, it seems you know a lot of the crit criticism is couched in those terms of how painful it was we just suffer through it it was it was um uh, well we could go on and on and think of adjectives that, that have been used i i understand that frustration i experienced that frustration as a huge fan of the show it was frustrating no doubt about it and yet, subsequent viewings, I've come to appreciate the Dougie character so much so that I I don't mind at all that we're not going to see Cooper for a while. I've kind of come to really love Dougie, this Cooper who's this just pure, innocent, good being who changes everyone he comes into contact with. Um, there's something... Uh, there's something valuable, I think, about that plot line. I think, again, they're subverting narrative there. And um, again, on subsequent viewings, I don't mind that it's 12 hours long. <laughs> so um, uh, I assume, Jubal, you've, you've watched The Return more, more than once. Um, tell me about your experiences in your, in your later viewings about Dougie. Uh, how do you see that character, and, and and does he have that effect on you? Do you appreciate him in a different way than you certainly might have in the first viewing? I love Dougie. I uh, I actually have only recently made this sort of Jacques Tati connection uh, because I was I have the Criterion Channel and I were watching some of those films and I was seeing uh, not not just the way that the Monsieur Hulot because Monsieur Hulot has a, uh, a uh, personality, but he is definitely a little bit of a blank slate, you know, who they give him a pipe and a hat and he walks around and he's just kind of befuddled by the world. You know, I'd say that, uh, in particularly the movie playtime, which is, uh, you know, you have these, it's, everything's kind of pulled out and you have just like the world kind of going on around him and he's just kind of lost. And I know that it's sort of a, a critique on modern, on the modern world. And I think that's the way that some of the stuff in Vegas plays out. Uh, because the first time we see, you know, the first time we we're introduced to Dougie's, both Dougie's, is in this mostly vacant uh, housing project. You know, that, that everything was supposed to, you know, there's supposed to be this big boom and it obviously just kind of went flat and you have all these, a ghost town of new houses, you know. Uh, and so I'd say that a lot of the concerns, and I'm sure that's a lot of Frost's influence there. Uh, um, people might think of Dougie as a very much a uh, Lynchian character, but I think he's a Frostian character at least as much, if not more so. Uh, but I love, uh, I love the Dougie stuff now that I'm sort of, uh, I've watched it probably, I'm, I'm in the middle of my fifth or sixth viewing. Uh, it's been, it's been a bit, uh, but I, uh, appreciate it more every time because I no longer have any of those, uh, old frustrations and I can, I just love it. It's just every moment of Dougie. I, I just love it. And we're given, we're given a side of Kyle McLaughlin. We never would have seen. If we were just given Cooper, you know, as he was, he would, it would just, I think that a Cooper, you know, the snappy Cooper that we knew, uh, in a, in a identical black suit, but 25 years older would kind of ring a little hollow in a way. I mean, you know, there's some fan service there, but it's like, we've seen those kind of, you know, uh, those kind of reunions and they don't often play out very well. And so I think we're given something that is a lot better, frankly, than if we had just gone back to 
plus bringing back the cherry pie, the whole cherry pie inter- uh, thing there with the uh, with the Mitchums. Uh, you know, that's fan service, but it's in a way that we never could have anticipated, and it, it and it plays out so beautifully. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting the way that the references to the old show are usually very brief, and um, they're not. Uh, you know they're they're there and then they're gone. I'm the same thing as saying they're brief, but um, um, they're one time only. We we don't we don't um, revisit the cherry pie. I mean, coffee's there frequently, but the owl appears once. You know the um, I think uh, the donuts really don't make a big <laughs> appearance too often. Um, but it, it, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. It, um, some of the things you're saying about Dougie and, and watching him. Um, and, and we talked about the sweeping scene, these things on, on subsequent viewing, I wonder how much this was intentional on Lynch and Frost, or it's just a result is that we like, I think when we're watching it in these subsequent views, we like to linger. I like to linger with Dougie. Dougie's about lingering, and the sweeping scene was about lingering. These ideas of just stopping and seeing the world or, or, or immersing yourself in the moment that's on screen versus waiting. What's going to happen next? How is this going to you know, impact the next scene? Um, there's something, I think, valuable to this idea of just pause, just stopping and being in the moment, that's, I really believe, what a lot of what Dougie is about. It's just being in the moment and accepting the world as it is around you. Um, in that way, it's certainly a counter, it's a counter narrative. I mean, it is a story that is stopped <laughs> in some respect. And yet I find that to be refreshing and valuable and um, allows me a little bit of chance to sort of think about the way I think about the world, my own um, way I move through life. Um, does that make any sense to either of you? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, uh, when I think of Dougie, the image that pops in my head is him with that sort of bovine look on his face, eating chocolate cake. Yeah. It's not his, pre- it's not his preferred dessert, but it's sweet and it's chocolatey and he loves it cause he's Cooper. Right. Uh, but it's not, it's not cherry pie. It's not donuts. It's like, uh, this is something, this is something that Dougie liked you know a side the side of that was given to the original tulpa like chocolate cake right and so that's what that's what janie e gives him because uh because you know well it was sunny jim's birthday but also uh you know uh apparently that side of cooper liked you know like those kind of sweets you know and so uh it's this idea that just like all of us we come into the world and then we're you know you're a libra and you're an uncle and you're, you know, we're told these things. These are, these are the labels that you have and you just go along with it. You're Dougie Jones. Okay. You know, and so he taps on his chest. The heartbreaking thing when he taps on his chest and he says, Dougie Jones, uh, this is me. I'm Dougie Jones, you know, because someone came up and told him that he was, you know, and, and that's what happens to all of us. Yeah. I really like that. You know, John, you mentioned suffering earlier <clears throat> and, you know, D- Dougie Jones, your Cooper is Dougie Jones, doesn't suffer in, in the return. I think of it almost like uh, Catholics think of the 12 stations of the cross, right? Jesus is not available to suffer now. (laughs) So they have to suffer for him through that ritual of, of thinking about the 12 stations of the cross and back to the, to the point of using viewers emotions to paint within the framework of the show itself as viewers, 
we assume a mantle of suffering because we know where Cooper was before, but yet, he, you know, we're, we're, we're stretched uh, in our anticipation on the screen and we do Cooper's suffering for him in those moments. And it's, it's just, uh, I think it's so poignant, especially upon multiple reviewings um, that it is the most important part of the return for me is, is the entire Dougie Jones section. Yeah, I never thought I'd say upon the first viewing in the summer of 2017, boy, I wish there'd been more Dougie. (laughs) (laughs) But then again, I never thought I'd say I wish there'd been more Roadhouse scenes. And um, to be honest with you, I love the Roadhouse scenes. The Roadhouse scenes are one of my favorite parts of it because, well, they're just they're great comic relief scenes. They're just funny. They're little melodramas um, and they don't. Well. I do think they actually connect with a with a larger plot, uh, uh, one particular subplot perhaps, uh, and that's Audrey. But um, uh, like Dougie, those scenes seem so frustrating on the first viewing, and yet on subsequent viewings, I, they they um, I I find myself kind of wishing there had been more. I'm sure if anyone who's not really a fan of season three and has listened this far into the podcast, they're probably screaming. How could you possibly say you wanted more? Um, But again, on those subsequent viewings, you come to see it so much, uh, so much more, you know, uh, different than you did um, on that first viewing. So I guess, I mean, Really, that's I think the most fascinating thing about our discussion here is how much we talk about how much we appreciate it more watching it again um, because we know what's going to happen. Um, um, I, I don't again, I don't know how much I want to subscribe to you know the intent of of Lynch and Frost, but I do think, um, particularly Lynch, having seen films that he's made you know before this. Don't you feel he is kind of um, he's kind of pushing back against the viewer a little and saying, I know for sure. And and I should say this, too. You know, some of the critics of season three, you know, they don't think this happened in in the original series, but it certainly did uh, in the second season premiere of uh, of Twin Peaks. When Cooper's laying on the floor, we've been waiting four months to find out what's going to happen. Is Cooper alive? Is he going to survive this gunshot? Who's going to save him? And the old waiter comes in, and there's this long, protracted, slow scene where the waiter you know, comes in with the milk, and he... Well, it, caught, it caused a fracture, right? I mean, I, I remember I watched this with my mother uh, a couple years ago. We, we were all on summer vacation together, and I'm like, we'll watch Twin Peaks together. And so we get to this, and my mother is a very traditional viewer, probably like, you know, your, your families as well. So they're used to CSI and those kind of, you know, scripted, you know, procedurals. And this scene comes on, and I just was watching my mom the whole time. I didn't even look at the screen. And, and all of a sudden, I could just see it hit her, and she goes, what the hell is he doing? What the hell is going on here? This is weird. <laughs> and it, it was just perfect. It was it was a fracture. It's great. Yeah. 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 I used to tell jokes about, you know, when we were waiting, anticipating the premiere, I was just like, you know, part of me hopes that the first hour is just old men shuffling around forgetting shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we, we did have evidence, certainly in Twin Peaks itself, that Lynch liked to tell stories this way. It really shouldn't have been a surprise to many that this was what was going to happen in the return. 
Um, but I think for the second season premiere of Twin Peaks back way back when, and certainly this new show, um, we don't feel that frustration when we watch it a second time. Do, um, do you feel that I mean, it's impossible really to, to feel that same initial feeling? It's a different approach. And right. in many ways, I think we, we gain an appreciation on those second, third, fourth viewings. It, you know, Scott and I wrote an article a long time ago about Firewalk With Me and, and the first two seasons where we, we said that the one thing in the original Twin Peaks that never lies is the music. Like, it tells you the truth about what's happening in the moment. It, even if your eyes deceive you and, and whoever's saying it, something on the screen deceives you. But that's gone in the return. And so I... I found myself on that initial watch like kind of floundering what the hell am i supposed to be holding on to here mm. but it's the emotion so to john's point about those little vignettes in the roadhouse the most important question that i asked myself even at the first viewing is what am i supposed to be feeling right now and what does that mean you know and that, that's how i kind of approached trying to find some meaning in in, in the return Right, which is why we grabbed on so much as a dark mood woods. Is that the name of the song that's or the piece that's over uh, uh, Andy and the waiting for, yes. you know, what's his face to show up? You know, and you hear you see that coming over the the hills. You know, there's that shot of the woods, and then there's and then you're like, oh my gosh, it's that piece. You know, it's that even if you don't know the name of it, you're like, okay, we're you know, and then you lean forward and and of course what you do is you get a slow push in on the slightly ajar door and there's so much dread in that moment because we've been cued in by this piece of music that we recognize you know we grasp on those things you know so true and we never return to that story we never find out well you you talked about josh you talked about the uh you mentioned the uh roadhouse things just recently and i and what that made me remember is the billy thing okay so we're talking about fractures in like time and space and all this kind of stuff and what we have is of course when the uh I think it's it's Lynch's son. He comes in and he says, "Anybody seen Billy?" And then after he after he leaves, uh, everybody in the double R uh, either switches seats or it's different customers. Um, and uh, and then Shelley turns around with her like thing of coffee, and she looks around and she has this moment of confusion where like something's wrong. Uh, but the mention of Billy completely changed everything, you know? So it's like, you know, that there's that. And then of course there's Ed with his cup, with his cup of soup in the reflection in the mirror. There's all these different little uh, indications that something, you know, Ed gets this funny feeling like a deja vu feeling uh, when, when that reflection uh, doesn't match his actions. And so there's these schisms that are happening uh, there too. Um and it seems to it seems to feed into or seems to come from possibly the roadhouse conversations about Billy uh, and and linking up to Audrey's uh, story. Right. Sure. So so Juba, let me ask you this. So we're watching the return. We've watched all. Oh, we've all watched it multiple times. Um, we know that it is fractured and that. Um, if we were going to try to tell somebody, uh, exp you know, describe the story, what it was about, um, it, it, it's really kind of impossible to say for sure what, what it was about because it doesn't have that traditional narrative. Getting back to the beginning of our conversation, um, it's a fractured narrative. It's, it's got uh, stories that don't necessarily go anywhere or stories that stop in the middle and we don't get to continue them. Um, have you 
found a way to make some comfort with that? If you, I guess, I guess, if you found for yourself, because I've done this, um, a solution, and I don't mean that there is a way to interpret uh, the return so that it everything makes sense, and this is what they were really planning. You know, I guess. Um, have you? Do you? have something that when you watch it, you go, yeah, you know, there's a sensibility here for me and I'm comfortable with it. Um, am I, I don't even know if I'm even asking that correctly, but, but do you have any comment on that? Yeah. The feeling that I get, uh, uh, about the, tw about the return is off. I think it might go back to stuff that Mar you know, Mark Frost talked about, which is this is a, you know, this is a show that's in a way about what it means to go back to a show 25 years later when everyone's moved on and, and a portion of the cast has passed away and uh, and everybody's in a different place. And the idea of going not just back to a, not just back to a story, but back to a town. You know, I don't know if any of you have like gone to a town that you haven't lived in in a quarter century, uh, you know, or, or this idea that, you know, you might run into somebody that's kind of working in the the butcher block of the local Albertsons that you went to high school with and you're both in your forties and you're like, well, okay. You know, it, that, that kind of feeling that things have moved on, the time has passed out of your view. And I think that's a lot. Well, uh, and I think so much of what happens in the return is, is things that we're glimpsing where most of it is happening out of our view. Uh, and uh, uh, Frost did talk about, it. I think he said it on uh, probably a number of places, but on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, he said that it was a, uh, it's like a road movie in the sense that, okay, now we're going to drive off. We're going to see the world's bar largest ball of twine. And you go and you gawk at the ball of twine and then you get back on the road and move on to the next thing. And so we're stepping into these different stories. And so I think it's, I think it's a, uh, a show about storytelling itself, uh, but from sort of a, a panned out view where we're, see we're seeing elements of like cross streams of stories popping out and then, and then receding. Uh, and so that's the way it makes sense to me is the fact is, is like a collage. It's a, it's a, uh, a tapestry of all these different swatches of stories. And then they collect, uh, they combine with the twin peaks that we knew, but there's so many other elements that it's something that's a lot more universal. Uh, and so it really feels to me like, like a, a text that's sort of like larger than any one work can really contain because we're, you know. Uh, we could bring in fractals and things like that. It contains the smallest, uh, the largest elements in the smallest elements. That's great. No, that's great. Uh, no, I mean, I, I see it very much the same way. Uh, I, I certainly like the idea that, uh, you know, it, it works on so many levels. And I think they were so ambitious in the way they were approaching this work because you're right. It has to do with the passage of time. It has to do with a commentary on television to some extent, you know, what, what, what Twin Peaks was, uh, the, the television show was in 1990. Um, it has to do with memory and, you know, how we might remember things differently, uh, you know, get back to the famous Fred Madison quote, you know, we remember things the way we want to remember them and not necessarily the way they happened. Um, all of those things are tied up in there. Um, and nostalgia and um, the passage of time and, and mortality. Uh, it's all there. And I think, um, I think they were very deliberate and very careful about um, weaving those concepts into this, this story. So, uh, I, you know, um, I, I appreciate it on all those levels. Yeah, it's the gift that Catherine Coulson gave us, you know, the uh, that she in her last days, 
they she's you know i know it's one of the first things they filmed but the fact that we're literally watching this woman die on screen i mean you know uh we're not seeing the final moments but it was a day or two later right and uh um, and so it is, uh, and the pain that she's feeling, you realize that she's, you know, her body's full of chemicals and she probably, it's probably a lot of work just to sit upright, you know, at that point. And the fact that she did that for us and for David and for, uh, and, and, and it works. So I think it is sort of the, uh, the keynote of the, of the whole meaning. I think we need to look at the fact that she was willing to drag herself out of bed and do that scene as probably something, you know, that's, that's the key to, the whole theme of the Twin Peaks, I think. I mean, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of stories where they're coming in and coming out, but the passage of time, life and death, uh, you know, what it means to be an individual, the, uh, the, the illusory schism between ourselves and the outside, you know, you've guys mentioned, uh, Frost is writing a book about Krishnamurti. Yes. Am I making that up? Yeah. Or he, he is. is? He is. He, he's finished with it. Yeah. Okay. And so we have, uh, we have, uh, Lynch, uh, in his, um, basically his Hindu beliefs, uh, and I believe that they're both kind of working from this idea of the, of the illusion of the self, uh, Krishnamurti and Alan Watts and all that kind of stuff with the idea that, you know, Alan Watts would talk about, you know, the ultimate, uh, uh, illusion is this idea that we're isolated egos walking around in bags of skin. Uh, you know, it's an illusion brought on by, by memory, uh, that, that our senses are feeding into this, you know, we, we, we record what's happening and then our senses, uh, the external, uh, uh, edge of our uh, sensory perception is how we get this illusion that we are a body, you know? And, uh, and so I think what the return does is it explodes that illusion, uh, using Cooper as an example, but he's not the only example. Right. Yeah. It, uh, puts me in mind of that old, uh, I think it was a Hindu story about, uh, Shreta Ketu where it basically came down to his, his instructor telling him, you are that, that you're looking at like that there is no separation and when you can finally feel that in the moment like that's the breakthrough that's the transcendent function so i want i wanted to talk a little bit about cultural hegemony because i think you know as a concept it caught me way back when i was in college this idea that you know the the there's this ruling class and and they kind of impose their their will on on the, an unsuspecting TV viewing audience. So let's just say that I can show you a, a show called Breaking Bad and it's going to tell you a story about a guy who broke loose and broke all the rules, but at the end he's going to get punished because that's what happens to people who break outside of the rules. As opposed to a show where I'm gonna I'm gonna sit you down for 18 hours. You're going to watch it. You're going to have no idea what's happened, but it's going to work on you subversively and slowly under the surface of your mind for years and years and years. And it's going to start to undermine and unwind all of those cultural norms that those other shows enforce upon you. And I, I feel like that's one thing that no one talks about for the return. And I feel it very strongly yeah. every time I rewatch it. I'm like, yeah. this is revolutionary. Yeah. And I think the way that he does that way, the way that Lynch directs it, and I'm, and of course we're going to give props to uh, Dwayne Dunham because I think that uh, Dwayne Dunham had to sort of like slow himself down. Cause you know, it's like that there's so much just two people talking. Okay. Let's say uh, I'm drawing a blank on their names, but the, uh, the two kids in the glass box. Uh, oh yes. Sam and Tracy, yeah. Sam and Tracy. So Sam and Tracy are talking and, uh, and they always allow, okay. One person says something and the other person is shown absorbing what is said and then responds. And then the other person is shown absorbing what the response is and then says something where normal editing 
is back and forth and back and forth. You cut, there's a shorthand there. It's like these two people are talking, let's get the information out. Okay. And that happens throughout, throughout the show, unless there's a reason to speed it up or slow it down even further. Uh, Lynch has this uh, tendency to allow people, you know, and, and what comes across maybe, and I think a lot of it might be the acting when, you know, that we all hear about, you know, behind the scenes where people are told to slow it way down. Gary Bullock, I think in, in your book, uh, John talks, you know, he says, uh, uh, you know, I, I had, you know, Lynch told me to slow it down to the point where it's uncomfortable. And, uh, I think that that's, that's probably maybe the single direction that most, uh, most of his actors here, because he says, you need to understand that I'm listening to the music in my head. You, you know, that, that's a fantastic observation. I'm really glad you brought that up and I'm, I'm glad you used the example of the conversations. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it until you just said that, but it's perfect because I think I'm going to paraphrase what you just said, but the conversation wasn't about the information. The conversation was about absorbing the information, reacting to it, res the response on the person who's listening. Um, and that just that tiny little idea right there, how you're going to edit a conversation speaks to such a larger theme. It's not about getting this plot across or getting this information across. It's about how we process the information, how we respond to it. Um, I hadn't thought about that. It's, it's so fantastic. I'm going to go back and look at some other conversations and that editing technique and, and, and watch that again. Cause I think there's something to that. Yeah. It's well, and it's at the end of, uh, towards the end of part four, the, uh, the blue tinted scene between Cole and Albert where, uh, and I think you mentioned this before in a previous episode where there's that, that tone comes in and you see, you know, uh, you see this, this, on Cole's face, there's this kind of thing where he's processing something and he goes, Albert, Albert, you know, and then he has this tone and, uh, it's like, uh, whether or not like, uh, he's passing a test or whatever, but I see it as an idea that we are, we are looking, we are now part of Cole's subjectivity, uh, because his thought process is slowing down and he is really working. His concentration is working. Lynch is showing us that moment in a protracted uh, way so that we can really feel again, it gets back to the other stuff that we talked about where it's like, we're, you know, we're trying to feel Audrey's frustration. We're trying to feel Cole's attention where time dilates and expands according to, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, you know, but these, uh, the, these, uh, coronavirus days kind of feel like they're all kind of blurring into each other and everything seems to be speeding, speeding up. Uh, that's the field that Lynch edits in, I think. You know, so there's that motion in, I think it's uh, episode three, where Cooper's in with NATO in the Purple Power Station. And when they touch, if you go back and rewatch, when they touch, time stops stuttering and it goes into almost full normal motion. I don't know what they did from an editing perspective there, but it leaked out to me the first time I watched it. I actually have it in my original analysis and I confirmed it every single time I rewatch. I'm like, that's absolutely fascinating. The idea that when they touch each other, they're operating at a different speed in time together than when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an audio plugin. I think that's actually a plugin that you can use. I don't know if it's an Ableton live or whatever, but uh, it's, there's like some things you can do where you can import video and you can use like uh, MIDI data, like you would for audio uh, software to, to uh, go forwards and back. You can, he's essentially either that, or he's recording uh, externally uh, scrubbing through the timeline just with a mouse. Uh, cause, cause you'll notice that when he does that, the quality of the image changes, it becomes brighter. And I think what they're doing, I think what they're doing is editing. Uh, I think what he might be doing is, you know, is just 
routing it out to an external device and scrubbing through back and forth. Uh, and that's something that, I mean, that might be a discussion for another time, but like this whole idea of Lynch's use of lo-fi digital uh, effects, you know, uh, kind of drew some ire at first, but I think there's some of the most gorgeous stuff, like, like when Cooper appears in, uh, well, you know, when he goes through the, uh, the electrical outlet and that when he's all stretched out and black and then he just kind of goes, you know, and you can tell that it's just kind of like an after effects or something like Adobe after effects. You just kind of like, you know, expand your container, you know, across a timeline. Like it's, it's really simple to do, but it looks so beautiful, you know, with the way that it's used. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate fracturing, of course, was the seismic fracturing uh, that created Whitetail and Blue Pine Mountains. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the, <laughs> I think that's something that's brought up in something. I can't remember where, if it was the, uh, the access guide or something, <laughs> but like this place of power. Yeah. This upheaval, this prehistoric upheaval of, uh, of the world, of the land, you know. Well, I was just going to say, I think Frost, I mean, he may have... I know when we interviewed him a long time ago, he talked about you know his original intent for um, writing a book was to take the history of Twin Peaks all the way back to the geological you know formation of the mountains. I think he he actually said that it may have found its way into the access guide, um, and I can't remember. I don't think he really gets into it in the secret history, but um, but that's certainly an idea that was on Frost's mind. You know. It, this this place went through its own kind of fracture and perhaps you know being in that physical space that place called twin peaks it does something to you <laughs> or it has an effect upon you so you know oh wait, uh, one more thought that i did have about uh schism is of course the atom that's inside the bomb during the test <laughs> you know i mean th these are all things that are basically like uh little nuggets that that kind of go to a broader theme uh of the illusion that there are two of anything you know um and uh the idea of white tail and blue pine mountains or or poles on a magnet or or positive and negative charge you know electricity you know uh, you know, another thing that Alan Watts talks about is that you got poles on a magnet. They call it the poles apart. These are two separate positive and negative forces. You know, uh, how could there be anything more separate? But they're unified by the magnet itself. It's it's yeah. And that's that is one thing. And so I think that I really think that fracture, you know, we could talk about you know, all the stuff that we talked about. But I think that that fracturing itself is one of the primary themes of the whole work. So Jubal, on that note, do you feel like the Richard and Linda scenario is a what's the right word a syzygy there's a there's a word for it where it's a bringing back together of of the fractured elements a syzygy i think it is mm -hmm. the word i'm looking for i don't even know if that's right but it sounds right um do you feel do you feel like that's what happens in that in that moment uh you mean like a whether they're, they're uh there's sort of like sex ritual yeah, is it a, is it like a bringing back together of that which was fractured before? That's a good question because I, I you know the way that I always interpret it is that the remember Richard and Linda when the when the um, fireman tell you know tells him that at the very beginning, uh, I see that as a mnemonic device to remember to remember that he's dreaming, uh, because he goes forward and doesn't call him. He says Richard and Linda. The only reason we call him Richard is because of the letter, and then he goes off and he's Cooper. So I mean that could be because. Uh, you know, I think that that part 18, you know, it's like, it's like this idea of going into another a deeper level of the onion where identity is no longer, uh, confined to a single body. 
now we have Carrie Page and we have uh, Rich, you know, we have Richard Cooper and 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 uh, th- this idea that he is, you know, in a completely different um, he has been thrust into a different identity. And unlike Dougie, who didn't have the intellect, you know, he was wife, so he, he just kind of went along with it. Uh, Cooper is able to remember that he's not Richard just by the sound of the name. So I don't know. I, I, maybe it's a further division. It's hard to say. <laughs> what Jubal said is so true, and I've often struggled a little bit with that. Is that uh, Cooper reads the, the the note and it says, you know, you know, it mentions Richard and Linda, and yet he identifies himself as Cooper uh, later in when he meets Carrie Page, and um, and so uh, um, we refer to him frequently as Richard in that sequence. But I, I. I find myself being very careful not to. Um, I don't know who Richard is, and I'm not sure. It may be, as you say, it may, it may not. I'm sure it has some import, and for and for Lynch, the idea of names, secret names. He's talked about that in lyrics to some songs. When you told me your secret name, I burst into flame. Um, the idea of identity, um, the idea of I mean, as he pulls some concepts from quantum physics that you have the idea of superposition and um, uh, you know the idea that two two people can be in two different places or two uh, particles could be in two different places. I mean, all of this stuff uh, kind of finds itself in part eighteen, and it's sort of a, a mishmash. And it may be that identity at that point doesn't really matter. What matters is um, uh, something something larger. I, I think Cooper in that part 18 is following programming. I can think of the um, the fireman when he in, when he talks to Cooper at the beginning is he's programming him, and so Cooper doesn't really even know what's happening. He's been he's got this program that's been inserted in and it's running now, and he's going to go find Carrie and he's going to bring her to. Twin Peaks. That I don't think he even knows why he's doing it. Um, so I just I think I think the Richard and Linda is just part of the code, the coding of the program. Yeah, uh, one of the things I was talking about with my interpretation against is Richard is a uh, I think is a mnemonic device. I think that Richard isn't really even what who he is. Uh, but he's uh, but the uh, I, I kind of interpret it as the integrated parts of Good Coop and Mister C minus the aspects that they gave their tulpas. So appetite, sloth, love, and family are, are all gone from this version of Cooper, but his good sides and, and bad sides are integrated. So you have, he's indifferent to coffee. Coffee is just a source of caffeine. Uh, he, yes. He's driven because yeah. he doesn't have any sloth. He, there's something missing you can tell just by looking at him. He doesn't have love. He doesn't have any, any of this desire for family because that has been given away to Janie E and, and Sonny Jim. And so I call him a roving, restless Cooper with no place to be. Yeah, I, I've written a little bit about this, too. I, I almost think in, in some ways you could interpret it as this grand heroic gesture on the part of Cooper is that he knows what he has to give up. Um, he he realizes, you know, when Diane says to him, when we cross over, it's all you know, it'll all be different. And he is determined he's going to do it. And he know, in some ways you could argue it's a sacrifice on Cooper's part. I'm going to give up everything. My chance for love, my my just delight in life, um, because um, there's something else I have to do, and uh, maybe I'm I'm making Cooper into too much of a of a heroic figure there, 
but um, you get the sense that obviously that Cooper that we see in part 18, the way he behaves in at Judy's with the, the three guys and, and uh, yeah, yeah, he's kind of, he's, he's pretty, um, what's the right word? He, he's pretty abrupt with the waitress. I mean, he, he doesn't, you know, he's like, you know, give me your address. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it's almost as if he, he, he's become this new Cooper so he can accomplish this other task. And in doing so, he had to give something up. So that, that's kind of one, one way I look at it. Part 18, I think, is filmed a little bit differently than uh, than the other ones in a sense that I really feel like a, like everything just kind of comes across as a little bit more realistic, uh, except for the whole, no one would fry a gun, I don't think. But other than that, <laughs> uh, it, it you know, it's, it's like the, the shot from across the street, you know, when they go to get gas and get snacks or whatever, you know, they're like Carrie and, and, and Cooper are on the road. Uh, all of this is just kind of drained of all of the qualities that we think of of Twin Peaks. And it's, it's, again, it's like Lynch is obviously self-aware of how his stuff comes across. You know, he's, he's using now, uh, I think a, a filming technique that's not in any other part of the film. And of course we have, as everyone knows, Mary Reber answers the door <laughs> as, uh, as Alice Tremont, you know? Uh, so we're, we're somehow one step closer to reality as one way to, to, uh, you know, to put it, you know, or interpret it. I, let me play devil's advocate a little bit right here because I've, I've heard this argument and I don't think you're making this argument, Jubal, but um, I have heard this from other people. Just that, well, you know, Cooper passed into our reality because Mary Reber is the true owner of the house and she opened the door. And But if that were the case, she would say my name is Mary and she doesn't. She says my name is Alice Tremont. And, I, and does she um, say, you know, the people who before were the Chalfonts? Um, and, and so – that is that's that is steeped in Twin Peaks mythology right there. I mean that is Firewalk with me and the two you know um, residents of the trailer park and it's it's second season um, with the Mrs. Tremont from you know the old lady and the grandson and and so I um, uh, I, I do see, I mean the point is well taken and it makes some sense this idea that he's kind of moved into uh, a more realistic world quote unquote. Um, but, I, you know, if I think if Lynch were fully committed to that concept, she would have opened the door and said, my name is Mary. Um, and and she doesn't. She says her Alice Tremont. And to me, it's still then existing within that, you know, sort of liminal <laughs> realm of Twin Peaks. And there's there otherworldly quality still. I think of that that whole drive. They drive into night. And I don't think they're driving into in uh, a location necessarily, driving across space. I think they're driving into time, and they come to a world of eternal, essentially a world of eternal darkness. And uh, and you know that is this place in the universe, time and space, at the end of whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm getting way off now. I don't mean to get so crazy here, but, but, but I guess the point is in some ways it's almost more otherworldly than it is right. closer to our reality. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And I, of course the re one reason I don't believe uh, that it's necessarily, Oh yeah. It's because you know, I think that he probably cast her because it was an, you know, interesting to do so. But uh, if that was the case, then we'd have to read into the casting of everyone. You know, uh, and I don't think that's the way that's not the way Lynch works. You know, it's like it's not she wouldn't be the one exception. I think it was just sort of, you know, it was it was advantageous to do so and probably amusing to do so. And a lot of fun for Lynch because, you know, he's all about oddly enough, as dark as everything is, he's all about fun. You know, 
No, I think you're absolutely right, and I think he's he's done it before. Um, uh, the gentleman who played Toad in season three versus the original Toad, um, I forget his his the actor's name, um, but he also I think he's in a deleted scene. He's in one of the missing pieces from Firewalk. I mean, he was a local up there in in that, and so was Criscoll, the guy who, who gives his blood. He was just a local that um, Lynch liked his look. Um, hey, look, Frank Silva is a great example of that. Frank Silva was just a was just a crew member. And and Lynch was like, I like your look. You're going to be in the show. <laughs> so I think he looked at Mary Reber and he was like, you just have the perfect look for this. You're going to be in the show. Yeah. It's like, where's my hot water, Carl? Yeah, exactly. Lady. There's yeah. another great example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I think let's start to round out the, the concept of, of fractures here. And I want to just posit a an idea that you know if the atomic bomb in part eight is what mark frost referred to in his conversation with sam ismail as an a quote originating event you know from my perspective i I like to think of that as the moment of soul corruption that you know we asked the question when when it was revealed that leland was a killer how can someone become so morally corrupted that they would do that to their own child now, the return from for me from Firewalk with me all the way to to the fade to black is an an exploration of that corruption. And if we think of that atomic bomb more as a metaphor for for the original corruption, and follow that all the way through to the final, what time is it? Fade to black. You know, if if it's true that the Big Bang originated from a space on the head of a pin in total blackness, that that's where we end with. I'm okay with that. And I think it's one of the most beautiful stories ever told. And it's what keeps me coming back time and time again to rewatch this season in particular above anything else that has ever been produced in Twin Peaks. What are your reactions to, to that? Um, well, it's interesting you, you bring up the atomic bomb because um, it, it is sort of the perfect case of the evil that men do, right, which is the concept that comes from the original series. Um, obviously, just detonating an atomic bomb out in the middle of the desert is not necessarily an evil act. Um, it was a scientific experiment, and it, using it in Japan arguably could be the evil act if you want to get into that you know, analysis. Uh, which I don't right now, but um, the idea that that mankind unleashed forces that it should not have been tampering with. Um, so there's that. There's that idea. Um, but getting to your more general point, I guess I am uh, right now. I'm certainly drawn to season three more than anything else. I find it to be, um, for me, I guess I take a slightly different tack, um, and that is, um, I. Feel as if I'm part of it, and I feel as if Lynch uh, and Frost, but I think a little more so Lynch, designed it to um, involve me, to make me a participant in the story, and so it becomes for me a story that no one else really can share. Uh, but then that's the same. That's true of you, and that's true of Jubal, and that's true of everyone, and that's true of the people who didn't like it. Um, everyone had their own unique experience with it. Obviously that's true of anything. We watch Breaking Bad, we're all having our own unique experience, but um, it was asking more, the return was, was asking more of us 
to give more of ourselves to it. And when we do that, we make it unique for ourselves. And, and that's why I love it. Yeah. Uh, it's like in conversation, John, you and I talked, you, you said that uh, the, uh, you know, possibly, you know, uh, some people expect the return to do all the heavy lifting. You know, and uh, and and the fact, and that's not necessarily laziness. That's just again, that's just like we, you know, watching television is a habit in a lot of ways. And uh, one way that it's a habit is uh, is because you start to think about how stories are supposed to go. It used to be that you, you know, Matt, you know, in the days of like Matlock or Gunsmoke, you wanted to see, you know, the bad guy do something in the first five minutes, and you wanted to see the resolution in the last five minutes, and then you move on. And then now, then you got the long form thing you know, or you have like soap operas where you have, uh, and you know, back in the day, Lynch, you know, when he was really young, he was watching daytime soap operas. And this was a form that didn't really make it into the evening and until it did. And then it changed television forever. Now I don't expect the return. This kind of structure is going to be something that we see, uh, becoming the norm and I wouldn't want it to, but it is something that what you're, what it's doing is it's created a, uh, uh, a, a never ending, uh, puzzle for us to to go through that I don't think necessarily has a solution. Um, I you know and uh, you know there's there's sort of a famous uh, four hour analysis video on YouTube that people can look up if they want. I made it about forty minutes in and I'm like all right, but <laughs> but <laughs> but um, but I think that uh, that is the gift that we have is something that we have eighteen hours uh, that is worth a million you know it's i i kind of i'm always thinking in terms of almost like fractal geometry you know there's so much in the tiniest parts that can be expanded into the largest parts and then there's all of these moments like i still am haunted by the little device in buenos aires that that implodes i mean what the heck you know <laughs> right so is, okay here's a, that's a great sort of a great way to end it you, you know you're you're haunted by it, it you love it some people are going to look at that and go, why is that all we get of that? Why aren't we getting, why aren't we getting more explanation for that? We are perfectly happy not to have it, I think. Um, and, and it's just a different way of looking at it. And I'm not going to pass judgment and say there's a right or a wrong, but um, I find in the return uh, just uh, more value than I do in almost anything else I've ever watched. Yeah. And so the potential, the potential is there for more yes. uh, than really anything else you could find on, on TV or in yeah. film. Uh, who is Mr. C talking to on the computer in part three? <laughs> or two, two, part two. Yeah. <laughs> and Mark Frost actually gets close to defining uh, who that is in the new David Bushman book. Oh, I didn't actually. Um, I, I, he, yeah, 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 I know. It was one of those things where I was like, whoa, yeah, Frost knows who that is. So it is it. it there is an identity to whoever that um, uh, that character is. But um, but we're never going to know. And that's perfectly fine with me. <laughs> Agreed. Well, I want to end with a quote of my own, John. This is coming from The Book of Nightmares, which is a book of poems by Galway Cannell. It's printed in 1971. I've had it with me for 25 years since college, and there was a great line in here that I came across a little bit ago, and I think it kind of sums up what we've all discussed today. And the line is, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed.
Cinema is a lot like music. It can be very abstract, but people have a yearning to make intellectual sense of it, to put it right into words. And when they can't do that, it feels frustrating. But they can come up with an explanation from within if they just allow it. If they start talking to their friends, soon they would see things, what something is and what something isn't. And they might agree with their friends or argue with their friends, but how could they agree or argue if they don't already know? The interesting thing is they really do know more than they think, and by voicing what they know, it becomes clearer. And when they see something, they could try to clarify that a little more and again go back and forth with a friend, and they would come to some conclusion, and that would be valid. David Lynch, Catching the Big Fish.